Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today I'm going to be telling you a story that I haven't been able to shake since I heard about it for the first time. The citizens of mid-eastern New Brunswick in Canada would spend most of 1989 in a real-life waking nightmare as the man who would come to be known as the monster of Miramichi stay lurking in their neighborhoods, evading capture from police all while breaking into homes at night and torturing and killing people before retreating back to God knows where during the day. Much like the boogeyman, he would stay hidden during the day until after the sunset when he was free to come out onto the streets and make anyone his next victim. Nobody was safe from the monster of Miramichi. The current mayor of Miramichi, Adam Lorden, remembers being a young child when this all was happening, and his parents actually moved away from his rural home to stay with their maternal grandparents during the monster of Miramichi's murder spree. But before we get into the details of all of that, I just wanted to remind everyone that if you like the show, you can follow me wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss another episode. As the summer winds down, I can't help but reflect on how I felt while creating the first few episodes of Crimopedia and how surreal it was to begin actually publishing. My first episode came out in March of this year in 2021, but I really have been working on the show for almost a year already. Thank you so much to everyone who has been listening and supporting the show, and if you're new here, you can always support by sending the episodes to your friends or hopping on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. As well, you can reach me by my case suggestion form on my website at crimopediapod.ca or on Instagram at crimopediapod. I think that's all I wanted to say. Now, let's jump right in. On June 21st of 1986, three men named Todd Matchett, Scott Curtis, and Alan Legere executed a plan they had to rob a general store in Black River Bridge, New Brunswick, Canada. The store was owned by an elderly couple, John and Mary Glendenning, and was located directly across a small yard from their home. John and Mary were simple New Brunswick folk who spent their days tending to their store and tending to each other in their old age. That day in June was just like any other for them. John and Mary had spent the day at the store and were winding down the day when John decided to call up some family members and spend some time chatting on the phone with them until about 10pm that evening while Mary was relaxing and drinking some bedtime tea. It was around this time, 10pm, when John finished a phone call up with one of the family members he was talking to and he heard a loud crash coming from somewhere close in their proximity. Before John Glendening could even get the words out, what the hell is going on? All three men, Matchett, Curtis, and Legere, appeared and began brutalizing the couple with large rocks from their front garden and restrained them. The men made it known upon entry into the home that they were there looking for a safe that the Glendennings kept, but the attack was much more drawn out than any typical home invasion robbery. The men began beating on John Glendenning senselessly, despite both John and Mary willingly ready to give up the safe and its contents. 
From an outsider's perspective, it certainly seems like there was some degree of enjoyment happening on the part of the attackers, because really there was no reason for them to continue beating on John and Mary the way that they were if they were only there for a safe that was already being given up to them. But after a prolonged, violent, drawn-out ordeal, the intruder seemed distracted enough to where Mary was actually able to free herself from her restraints and managed to sneak away and head to the upper level of the home where she would get on the phone with 911. During this call, Mary told the 911 operator that she was convinced she was going to die, but she was doing her best to give the most accurate description of who had broken into her home and attacked her while just trying to remain conscious. The attackers had no idea what Mary was doing at this time because they had actually cut the phone line as a part of their plan, but the phone line that ran to the upstairs was apparently different than that of downstairs, so thankfully Mary was able to call for help. And the intruders were not at all expecting police to even show up, let alone be hot on their trail when they arrived. When police got there, the intruders made a quick dash and police found Mary barely hanging on to consciousness. She was brutally beaten, sexually assaulted, and borderline unrecognizable. Unfortunately, although Mary was able to spare her own life by getting help, this ordeal would be the last thing that her and her husband John would ever experience together because it was too late for him when police arrived. John was found deceased in the home from the brutally violent beatings inflicted on him by all three intruders, but especially Alan Legere. Thankfully, police were able to apprehend all three men not too long after they fled the scene, likely in part due to the total lack of preparedness on their part in case of a police presence, given they had cut the phone line, or at least that's what they thought they did. And police found them with about $5,000 cash from said safe that they were after. What's really interesting about this though, is that during interrogations when all three men were brought into the police station, it was discovered that Todd Matchett and Scott Curtis were teenagers. Todd was 18 and Scott was just shy of 20, both with petty rap sheets, but this was both of their first serious violent offenses. It turned out that these two kids basically had been on a six month long petty crime spree up until very recently when their minor thefts and criminal associations led them running into 38 year old Alan Legere. Their association with Alan led them from petty crimes to committing a murder and getting caught for it the same day. Alan Legere was convicted of the murder of John Glendening and was sentenced to life in prison where he would serve his time at the maximum security Rennes Institution in Smith's Crossing, New Brunswick, about 40 minutes or so from Black River Bridge where the murder happened. As for the other two, Scott Curtis and Todd Matchett, they would both also be convicted and serve life sentences for this crime. On May 3rd of 1989, just shy of the three-year anniversary of the murder of John Glendenning, Alan Legere was being transported to the Dr. George's L. Dumont Regional Hospital in Moncton, New Brunswick for an ear infection. What the correctional staff who were escorting him to the hospital didn't know was that Legere was planning to use this trip as an opportunity to escape. He had served a couple years in jail and was ready to get out. 
and so he had somehow managed to conceal a broken TV antenna on his person, as well as another piece of a metal fragment hidden inside of a cigar. He then somehow successfully convinced the guards to let him use the washroom by himself once they arrived at the hospital, and that's when he freed himself of his restraints and fled. Within the span of a few minutes, Alan Legere had just become a free man, and he made it to the hospital parking lot where he ran into a young woman by the name of Peggy Olive as she was near her vehicle. Alan shoved Peggy into her own car and made her drive 140 kilometers south of Moncton to the city of Miramichi. In Miramichi, Alan Legere would be at large for almost seven months, committing a violent crime spree that terrorized the neighborhood areas of Chatham Head all the way to Newcastle along the Miramichi River and would leave a lasting impression on the community rooted in fear and is remembered vividly over 30 years later. I know that as I continue telling the story, you guys are going to understand, but I cannot stress to you enough how dangerous this man was and how chaotic and unpredictable he was. I had a friend once say to me that the most dangerous people aren't necessarily the ones who are the biggest or the strongest, but the most dangerous people tend to be the ones that are just sheerly unpredictable. Nobody knew what Alan Legere was going to do at any given moment. Nobody knew, even his own criminal accomplices, they had no idea that they were going to walk into the home of John and Mary Glendenning and beat a 65-year-old man to death. Alan Legere's chaotic and unpredictable violence would, like I said, terrorize Miramichi for almost seven months after he escaped. Alan Legere was born on February 13th of 1948 in Chatham Head, New Brunswick, which is about 14 kilometers or 8 miles away from Miramichi. Alan and his siblings, an older brother and two sisters, grew up in what was considered to be a rough area in New Brunswick at the time. I don't know if it still is, but their personal life at home wasn't much more smooth sailing either. Alan's mother, Louise Legere, was married in the 1930s to a man named Vince, who reportedly was very abusive to her, describing him as a twisted and vicious person. So she ended up raising her children alone and allowing travelers to rent rooms in her home to make ends meet. An interesting detail that I read in the novel Terror's End about this whole case by Andre Benoit, Rick McLean, and Sean Waters was that one of these travelers that Louise Legere let stay in her home for some extra cash was a man named Leonard Corneau, who ended up taking quite a liking to Louise, and the two would have sort of a fling, which is how Alan was born. Leonard didn't stick around. And so, once again, Louise was left to take care of her children solo, but this time she also now had a newborn. Tragedy would strike their family when Alan was only nine years old. His brother Frederick died after a hit and run late at night that resulted in his death and the death of another friend he was with. This incident gutted the Legere family, and to make matters worse, they were in no position financially to hire adequate legal counsel, so justice was never served for this accident. To this day, Alan insists that the whole ordeal was not an accident, and it was possibly a part of some sort of conspiracy, and it clearly impacted the family profoundly, especially Alan. 
Like I mentioned before, the Ligiers were not wealthy people, and even after the tragic death of one of the siblings, there was still a large number of people living in the home. Due to this fact, and due to the layout of their house, the Ligiers had to share rooms with each other. Unfortunately, due to these circumstances, while Alan was going through puberty, he was having to sleep in the same bed as one of his sisters until he was about 12 or 13 years old. Some people online speculate that the intensely traumatic ordeal of losing a sibling at such a young age, so suddenly and in such a violent way, all compounded with these sleeping arrangements happening during puberty, it all led to Alan developing maladaptive coping strategies for stress and subsequently underwent deviated psychosexual development. And this would become a prominent theme throughout Alan's life. One of Alan's first run-ins with the law happened in the 1960s when he was caught as a young kid engaging in acts of voyeurism. If you're unfamiliar with voyeurism, it's the act of watching someone either through a window or just without their knowledge while they undress or engage in sexual intercourse. Unfortunately, around this time as well, Alan started declining in school, which shocked a lot of people who knew him because even though, you know, mentally he was suffering with the loss of his brother and he was beginning to engage in paraphilic behaviors, people remembered Alan as a smart kid before things went so downhill. As he got older, however, Alan would detach emotionally from his friends and family by refusing really to ever speak about anything on his mind, and he began slowly retreating into existing solely within the confines of his own psyche. Alan began talking less as he grew older, and he would just keep quiet most of the time. That was until any attractive female would walk by, and Alan, out of nowhere, had a habit of bursting out crude remarks, and in one incident even assaulted a female classmate at school by pulling her blouse down and saying, you want to show it? So show it. Not only was Alan Legere dealing with trauma in his family and trauma through his development, but now his grades were declining, he was isolating himself from all of his friends, and he spent his free time watching people have sex through windows. And things would only get worse for Alan over the years as he began dabbling in petty crimes other than voyeurism. He would bounce between jobs, even spending time in and out of jail at a really young age. When he was 18, he decided he was unhappy in Chatham Head, and so he moved to North Bay in the province of Ontario, but he ended up not being happy there either. I think for all intents and purposes, it's appropriate to say that Alan tried turning his life around using this new start as a catalyst for positive change in his life. He worked as a machinist, he got married, he had two children, but he left soon after all of this stuff happened because he was becoming increasingly restless. He was not happy with his life in North Bay, and so before long, he ended up back in New Brunswick but that didn't seem to help him shake whatever he was going through. Alan, over time, back in New Brunswick, became increasingly depressed and seemingly delusional as well. Alan became known to trap people into conversations about good versus evil, which he claimed to be well-versed in, and he would talk endlessly about a fantasy life he had dreamed of, full of wealth and riches, but he also told many people he had no control over his emotions, which slowed him in life. 
His behavior was becoming more and more deviated and bizarre over time. His voyeuristic tendencies were deepening, which escalated from peeping through windows to actually entering people's homes and watching women as they slept. Alan's rationale for these behaviors were so wayward and messed up, he reportedly justified these break and enters as just an attempt to satiate his own desires, and he told other people that, oh, it's not like the victim would ever really know what he was up to. He would steal something while inside people's homes after he finished watching them sleep and possibly sexually satisfying himself so that they would wake up the next morning and think it was a quote-unquote normal burglary. It was pretty clear that Alan was deteriorating fast, and he became unable to engage in really any sort of conversation at all without an overwhelming compulsion to dominate the conversation. His opinion was the only thing that needed to be heard. He spent a lot of time trapped inside his own mind, trying to sort out all the trauma he had been through. And his thoughts would manifest as very bizarre actions. There was one incident where Alan interrupted a Sunday service, bursting through the doors of the church wearing nothing but denim jeans, screaming at the congregation that they were all going to hell. The details of Alan's life that led to his bizarre, criminal, and paraphilic behavior interest me so much. And thankfully, I was able to find a lot of the information about Alan's early life from the novel Terror's End, which I mentioned earlier. If you're anything like me and you're interested in the psychology of very sick people like Alan Legere and you want to try to understand why he could have possibly done any of the things that he did, then I highly, highly, highly recommend you check it out. I will link the novel on my website at crimopediapod.ca in the sources and on my Instagram at crimopediapod. Unfortunately, there is so, so much I still have to cover about this case, so I'm gonna move on from Alan's life and development, but I think you guys get the message. This man was very sick and he was spiraling out of control and it wouldn't be before long that he was going to start seriously hurting people if he hadn't already. In 1974, Alan Legere was picked up by police in Chatham Head after 56-year-old Mary Beatrice Redmond was brutalized on the porch of her own home in the most bizarre way. Mary was found deceased, stabbed over 80 times in the entryway of her front door. Oddly, there was no blood at the scene, which was obviously very bizarre for such a brutal attack, and so police thought she had been killed after attending mass at the local church, which was not too far away from her home, and then dragged there. Due to Ligier's increasingly sketchy reputation around town, police were especially interested in seeing if they could verify his whereabouts for approximately when Mary Redmond was murdered. And I'm going to go ahead and assume that they put together a timeline based on her regular attendance at mass, maybe, as well as the state of decomposition she was found in. If this is the case, then police obviously had a pretty strong timeline for when Mary would have been murdered. And with such a narrow window of time, it should be pretty easy to verify anyone's whereabouts during that time, right? That's what police thought, but Alan's cognition was, like I mentioned, incredibly difficult to follow and he was very difficult to converse with. 
police were simply stymied by Alan's ability to somehow sit in an interrogation room for hours, completely unintimidated, and ramble the entire time all about himself and his wayward beliefs without ever incriminating himself. Alan Legier was never formally implicated in the murder of Mary Beatrice. Many people still speculate online that he was responsible, but formally the case has never been solved. And by extension, that means that Alan just rambled throughout that interrogation until it was time for police to let him go. It would be a few years later in 1978 that Alan's violent tendencies would actually come to fruition and be broadcasted in the spotlight. If we're working on the assumption that he did not kill Mary Beatrice Redmond because it was never proven, then it would be after he affiliated himself with a fight club that his violence was undeniable. And I'm only really mentioning this here because Alan was reportedly a dirty fighter too. There were many incidences where he severely disfigured people, which is discussed in great detail in Terror's End and some of the other source material provided on my website. So at this point in time, around 1978, not only was Alan sexually deviated with paraphilic tendencies that he was acting on, and a history of voyeurism, theft, erratic behavior, and involvement with police, he was now also actively seeking out opportunities to physically brutalize other people on a semi-regular basis. One of the people Alan would frequently beat on was his second wife, Donna, who he married only shortly after he became a divorcee from his first marriage, which he claimed that whole ordeal was the worst mistake of his life. And I have to laugh, not because it's funny at all, but because it shows great lack of insight on the part of Alan Legere, and it really gives you a window into his deviated ways of thinking if he claims that his first marriage was the worst mistake of his life, yet he's murdered numerous people, sexually assaulted even more, brutalized even more, stolen like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff, but like a failed relationship is the worst thing you ever did? Mm. Okay. <laughs> Alan and his second wife Donna lived in a mobile home in Moncton, New Brunswick after he was actually released from jail in 82 after a violent altercation with police that ended with him pulling a knife on one of the officers. That summer in Moncton, there was a series of break-in enters that nobody was ever convicted for, but again, police suspect that Legere was behind them all, just as they had suspected him for the murder of Mary Beatrice Redmond, just couldn't prove it. In truth, Alan most certainly was breaking into people's houses and had been doing so for years when his voyeurism escalated from looking through windows to standing at the foot of a person's bed and watching them sleep. Alan liked breaking into people's houses. He found it funny and he would brag about it to his friends. So much so that he actually once broke into a friend's home and waited for them to wake up while he stood there in their room watching them sleep just to laugh at them and brag about how easy it was to get in. Life was all a game to Alan Legere. That was until the end of that summer in 1982 when he would be busted for breaking and entering, but he didn't go down without a fight. Alan fell 15 feet to the ground after trying to flee police and was actually shot in the shoulder, all while still clutching the jewelry that he had stolen from the home he just broke into. And just to give you an idea of how far gone Alan Legere truly was, during the trial for this crime, 
After the presiding judge announced an adjournment of the proceedings due to a witness technicality, Legere pulled out a razor fragment that he had somehow managed to conceal on his person in the courtroom, raised his left arm into the air, and slashed his wrist with so much force that blood splattered all over the courtroom. He then began slinging his arm in the air and waving it around, screaming, This is what I think of all of this while the jurors screamed and the stenographer bolted out of the room. Now that you have a well-rounded idea of the type of person Alan Legere was and the extent to which he would take things, I want to take you through his crimes post-hospital escape one by one. While at large, on the run for almost seven months, Alan Legere would hide during the day and walk the neighborhoods of Miramichi late at night lurking, seeking out potential victims to steal from and brutalize in an attempt to satisfy his deviated desires. Like I mentioned before, the people of Miramichi and frankly the people of the province of New Brunswick as a whole were terrified of the man they knew was lurking amongst them. On May 7th of 1989, just a few days after Alan had escaped from the hospital, he brutalized a man named Max Ramsey by tying him up and physically assaulting him, all so that Alan could make off with his wallet and car, which was later found in Newcastle, New Brunswick, located along the Miramichi River. Numerous people were able to positively ID Legere in the Miramichi area around this time, and people saw him acting suspiciously around homes, and others would see someone matching his description around their own home, and then come to realize later that some of their belongings were missing. When I say that Alan Legere would lurk around people's homes, I'm not kidding. On May 29th of that same year in 1989, after Alan Legere had escaped from the hospital and after he had brutalized Max Ramsey to steal his car and wallet, Alan would escalate once again. 75-year-old Annie Flam operated a local grocery store for many years in Chatham Head and was consequently known to the community. On this day in May, a citizen by the name of Harry Preston drove by the home of Annie Flam, which was sort of like an apartment over the store, around 3.50 a.m. and noticed a fire and smoke billowing from inside the home. Officer Daniel Poo of the Miramichi Police Department, upon arrival to the scene, booted in the back door to the residence and found Annie's sister, Nina Flam, partially clothed, laying at the bottom of a staircase that led up to the apartments, and she was nearly unconscious from the fumes of the fire. Nina would later testify that she was awoken around 11 p.m. by a masked intruder before she was attacked and sexually assaulted, and unfortunately her sister Annie would be attacked by the same intruder in the home and she would not survive. Annie was found in her bedroom, obviously deceased, and unfortunately due to the fire, it was pretty difficult to make out the extent of her injuries. However, pathologist Dr. John McKay was able to conclusively say that Annie's jaw had been broken from two very severe blows to the face and it was clear that she was beaten. What was also known by Nina and people who were close to Annie was that she had a habit of wearing pajamas to bed every single night, but when she was found, she was found partially undressed with her undergarments pulled around her legs. Dr. McKay was also able to say conclusively that she died before the fire was lit, with her official cause of death being aspiration of her own vomit after repeated blows to the face. 
Despite police arriving to the scene within a few hours of the attack, they were not quick enough to stop Alan Legere from brutalizing Annie and Nina Flam. Alan Legere would get away with and continue ravaging the Miramichi area for another six months. Only a few days later, on the night of June 1st, a citizen of Chatham Head by the name of Joe Irving chased a dark figure off of his property who was trying to break in. And the next day, a contractor who was working in the area found a pair of gray men's glasses near a pile of lumber on the job site, very close to the home of Joe Irving. Knowing Alan Legere was at large and considered dangerous, these glasses were taken to an optometrist by Constable Kevin Mole to compare with Alan's known eyeglass prescription on police records. Mind you, everyone in the community at this point knew exactly what Alan Legere looked like. He was tall, rough around the edges, and wore glasses. For this contractor to have picked up the glasses and known to have contacted police to get them checked out was so, so smart. And it turned out to be worthwhile. Chatham's chief of police at that time, Jack Bell, would later say that the eyeglasses found by the contractor were in fact the exact style, color, and prescription that Alan had the day he escaped from the hospital. And this was so promising. Alan's eyesight without his glasses was pretty terrible, and it would be a lot easier to spot a man who already kind of sticks out from the crowd if he's also frustrated, can't see, and is bumping into things. However, despite this new information and despite, like I said, every single person in the Miramichi area being on the lookout for someone matching Alan's description, his lack of eyesight did not stop him from terrorizing Miramichi, and neither did the $2,000 reward put out for information regarding his whereabouts by Crime Stoppers. But just because police were unable to catch him at this time, it doesn't mean that people weren't reporting sightings of him, because people were reporting sightings of Alan as far away as Toronto, Ontario, which is over 1,300 kilometers away from Miramichi. But police had an inkling that he was still in Miramichi because of all of the crimes that were still going on that they couldn't solve. Although a lot of the crimes that happened in this area at the time cannot be 100% attributed to Alan Legere because there was no proof and he didn't admit to everything, it's highly likely that he is responsible for most, if not all, of the break and enters, the random attacks on the street, he was the tall dark figure that everyone saw lurking around their homes, and he was the one who even shot one woman in the back with a shotgun after he demanded money. Although again, like I can't confirm that that was him, but it certainly fits his style of violence. People began installing extra motion-sensitive lights around the perimeter of their properties, and eventually police would have to start dressing in only bright yellow and orange vests to identify them as officers out of fear of being shot by scared homeowners in the night because people were so on edge. It seemed like every day in the news around this time it was something new. Someone else had been attacked, someone else's home had been broken into, and by late June of 1989, police had over 50 reports of Alan Legere's potential whereabouts and the crimes he was committing along the way. After a bit of a hiatus, it was on October 13th when Alan Legere would kill again and thrust himself back into the spotlight. Alan couldn't help himself. He was arguably hiding in plain sight and doing an okay job at it, but he was impulsive. He had itches that needed to be scratched, and as long as he was at large, someone was going to pay the ultimate price for that. This time, it would be two people, a pair of sisters who lived together, Linda and Donna Donnie. 
Linda was 41 and Donna was 45 and they were both from Newcastle, New Brunswick and I'm pretty sure they lived there together their entire lives. From some of my research, I was actually able to gather that Alan knew the Donnies and apparently he would work out at the same gym that they both went to in Newcastle, with Alan apparently having a pretty big crush on both of them. That morning in October, Donna was seen by multiple people painting around the house all day. Even when most of the neighborhood was turning in for bed around 10 p.m., she was still painting. Around 11 p.m., Linda had returned from catching up with a friend at a Tim Hortons coffee shop, and shortly thereafter, a neighbor of the sisters, Margaret Murray, while making lunch for her husband, noted that the lights to the back door of the Donnie home were out. This was odd to Margaret because for as long as she could remember, this light was always kept on. It would be discovered later that Alan Legere unscrewed the light bulb so that he could creep around the entrance of the house without being seen. At around 3.30 a.m., someone in the neighborhood noticed the lights inside the house were on, which is obviously unusual, but even more so was around 5.45 a.m., another person noticed a fire raging from inside the Donnie home. By 8.10, police had located the bodies of both Linda and Donna inside the home and Dr. Basil Blanchard pronounced them both dead. The autopsy reports estimated the sister's time of death to be around 11.30 or potentially later, which, if that is accurate, places Alan Legere inside the Donnie home for at least four hours. If he got there around 11 when Margaret Murray noticed the light to the back door was out, then it would have been impossible for him to have left the home any time before 3.30 a.m. when that neighbor noticed that the lights inside the home were still on, but there was no fire. And just to be clear about these fires, if we weren't already, Constable Charles Barter, who arrived at the scene of the Donnie home, stated that the fire was absolutely set intentionally, strategically placed in the home with the intention of destroying it. The autopsy also showed that Donna died as a result of being beaten and, like Annie Flam, was tucked into bed and aspirated on her own vomit. In fact, upon inspection of the scene, Constable Kevin Mole suspected Alan Legere right away due to the similarities between this crime and the murder of Annie Flam, which everyone in the department was positive he was also responsible for. By drawing parallels to the murder of Annie Flam, as well as once police were able to take a deep dive into what happened to the Donnie sisters, it became pretty obvious that Alan Legere was torturing his victims, which explains why he would have been in the Donnie home for so long, and their injuries corroborate this. Both the Donnie sisters' jaws were broken, Linda was stabbed multiple times, and semen was found on both of their bodies. The funeral director at this time, although I couldn't find their name, apparently was close with the Donnies and yet could not recognize either of them once they arrived at the funeral home simply due to the extent of their injuries and the fire. Alan Legere broke into the Donnie home, sexually assaulted both sisters, and beat them before murdering them. Alan took his time murdering the Donnie sisters and made himself very comfortable in their home before setting it on fire and sneaking away in the night right under the nose of law enforcement. But after this, police were definitely getting closer and Legere was feeling the heat. 
Crime Stoppers had upped the reward for information on his whereabouts from $2,000 to $10,000. And only two weeks after the murders of the Donnie sisters, police came quite literally within inches of capturing Alan Legere on foot. On the 28th of October, still in 1989, a truck parked outside of the Murata Motel in the Chatham area was broken into and burglarized, and two guns were stolen. Corporal Thomasin and his police dog, Sam, were brought in and able to get a hit on the burglar's trail, and it turned into a chase. Sam was unimaginably close to getting a grasp on the suspect's leg, but Corporal Thomasin would fall 30 feet from the top of a fence he climbed while chasing the suspect and was pretty badly injured. Police were absolutely convinced that they had almost just apprehended Alan Legere, that they even evacuated some homes in the area because they knew how dangerous he was and that if things got sticky, then this manhunt could turn violent very fast. At the end of it all, police were unable to catch up with who they highly suspected to be Alan, but like I said, Legere was definitely feeling the heat. And it would only be a month later when police would get on television and state conclusively to the public during an organized press conference that they suspected Legere of the murders of the Donnie sisters and Annie Flam. Now, it's not like the public didn't already know who Alan Legere was and what he looked like, Residents of the Miramichi area will tell you firsthand. At this time, children were being kept indoors, people were installing extra motion-sensing lights outside their home, elderly residents were leaving their homes to stay with family, and like I mentioned before, police were donning the bright orange and yellow reflective attire to identify themselves. Everyone in the Miramichi area who had access to a firearm would wait by their doors at night, finger on the trigger, ready to defend themselves and their homes from the monster of Miramichi. Now, the other important piece of information that was disclosed during this November 16th press conference, only a few weeks after Corporal Thomasin almost caught Alan Legere, was that there was another murder in the Miramichi area. Alan Legere's fourth victim during his what was approaching seven-month-long murder spree on the run was 69-year-old Father James Smith, a Roman Catholic priest of the Blessed Virgin Mary Roman Catholic Church in Chatham Head. It was evident now, more than ever, that nobody was safe, and after the discovery of Father Smith's bloody and battered body in his home, RCMP Sergeant Ernest Munden affirmed the public's fears by saying, quote, everyone is a potential victim. One of the last times Father Smith was seen alive was the night before, on November 15th of 1989, when he was seen outside on the patio of the church rectory where he lived and worked, looking like maybe he had lost something or was looking around to identify something he had seen or heard. It would be almost 24 hours later when Father Smith's fate would be discovered on the evening of November 16th as he was scheduled to deliver a sermon at 7pm and his parishioners became very concerned when he was not in the church at least 15 minutes before Mass. It was unlike Father Smith to not be present a little bit early to greet his congregation as they all began arriving at the church for the regular service. 
Some of the next few details do conflict in my research of this case, but either one or two members of the congregation went around to the rectory where Father Smith lived to go see if he was home and see what was going on. Another conflicting detail, either one of them or both of them went into the rectory after knocking and receiving no answer with a key he had from doing odd jobs around the rectory. Another source I read said that either one or both of the members of the congregation only had to peek through the kitchen window to see exactly why Father Smith would not be leading mass on this night. Whether or not the individual or individuals from Father Smith's congregation actually went inside the rectory or not, it was evident from the condition of his body upon finding him and the sheer amount of blood at the scene that Father Smith had suffered a brutal beating. He was found with his neck cut, he was battered, and like Annie Flam and the Donnie sisters, Father Smith's jaw was broken. However, unlike the other murders that had occurred in the area over the last couple months, no fire had been set and the scene was entirely preserved. Constable Joseph Lafontaine was the first to arrive at the scene that evening shortly before Sergeant Jacques Aulet, and police were able to put the pieces of this attack together quite quickly due to the lack of arson. You see, Alan Legere was messy, and he had a habit of making himself quite comfortable in other people's homes, like I mentioned before. In the rectory, there were large, bloodied footprints trailed all through the home, and it was apparent that during the day before Father Smith was discovered on the 15th, Alan had done just that, made himself quite comfortable. Police discovered that Alan Legere ate food from Father Smith's fridge and left his mess everywhere. He had also made an attempt to wash his boots and then put a plastic bread bag over each foot to keep them dry. He had also changed into Father Smith's clothes and put his own bloodied clothes in another bag after he had ransacked a safe in the home and even at one point answered the home phone of Father Smith, picking up the receiver and saying only, quote, wrong number, before hanging up. After spending the night in Father Smith's rectory, he decided it would be a good time to get out of sight, so Alan then hotwired the priest's 1984 Oldsmobile Delta, which would later be found near the Ketty Motel, now renamed, along with a pair of semi-bloodied boots about an hour north from the scene in Bathurst, New Brunswick. It turns out that this motel was only 10 minutes or so away from the nearest train station, and at around 7.45pm, someone from the Via Rail, which is a train company in Canada, sold someone matching Alan Legere's description an overnight ticket to Montreal, Quebec. Police had a public description out of Alan Legere, and it was that he was heavy set, he had dark hair, he likely had facial hair at this time because he's not shaving anywhere unless he's in someone's home, and police described him overall as looking rough. Mind you, this man had been on the run for half of a year, spending most of his time hidden in forests and wherever he could stay out of sight during the day. So somebody from the Via Rail company sold a train ticket to someone matching this exact description. But by the time police were on his trail, the train carrying the man who matched that description had long departed and Legere was already on his way to the province of Quebec. 
When he arrived, Alan Legier would check himself into the Queen Elizabeth Motel in Montreal under the alias Ferdinand Savoie, and he would reportedly spend the next few days in and out of pawn shops trying to sell some of the jewelry he had stolen from the Donny sisters. Alan was reportedly also in the process of trying to acquire a new pair of glasses from Dr. Ralph Greach because, you know, he lost them. If you remember, a contractor in Chatham Head, New Brunswick, had found a pair of eyeglasses that were highly suspected to belong to Alan just a short distance from where he had attempted to break into the home of a resident in the middle of the night before he was chased off. An employee at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel said that Legere's room was very messy, and at one point she entered it to clean it and found the floor flooded by a blocked toilet. But other than his occasional walk doing his rounds between pawn shops, Ferdinand hardly left his room. It was unclear as to why, but at some point between November 20th and the 22nd, Alan then thought it would be a good idea to return to New Brunswick, just as he did many times before in his life. And really the only reason I find it relevant to even mention the fact that Alan made it to Montreal was the fact that police were so close behind him after he had killed Father James Smith. And if you remember, this is not at all the first time that police came actually very close to capturing him, but once again he got away. Most of the information in court documents and news articles detailed the tail end, sort of, of how Alan Legere made it from Quebec all the way back to New Brunswick, but it's unclear to me at least how he first ended up on the road back to Miramichi again from Montreal. My assumption is that he hitchhiked because that is essentially what he was doing on November 23rd when he entered a taxi cab and threatened the driver, Ron Gomke, with a sawed-off 308 rifle and told him to take him from St. John, New Brunswick to Moncton in the middle of one of the worst snowstorms that the east coast of Canada had ever seen. The storm was so bad that Legere and Gomke ended up nose first into a snowbank a few miles just outside of Moncton. Alan ordered Gomke out of the car, still with the sawed-off rifle pointed in his direction, and that's when another car pulled over to see if she could help and offered the pair a lift to their destination, like a good Samaritan. However, in a crazy twist of events, it would be only a few minutes into this car ride when the driver disclosed to Legere, who was again still concealing a gun pointed in Gomke's direction, that she was Constable Michelle Mercer, an off-duty RCMP officer returning from Montreal. In return to this disclosure, likely because Alan Legere simply couldn't help himself, he told her he was Alan Legere and pointed his rifle in her direction. In the confusion of the storm and the rifle pointed at her side, Constable Mercer somehow ended up driving away from Moncton, where Legere requested to go, and instead was heading westbound on the Trans-Canada Highway, which is a cross-country highway that Legere would have likely traveled on his way back to New Brunswick from Quebec. But now, with everything going on, she somehow turned around and was technically heading back to Quebec. Alan Legere was obviously frustrated and clearly not in a good situation. He was trying to navigate his way back to a city with officers crawling the streets looking for exclusively him while in the middle of a snowstorm and with two innocent hostages, one of them being an RCMP officer. 
This entire situation made Alan very frustrated and he began threatening Constable Mercer, but thankfully she and Ron Gomke, who was still in the back seat of this car, would finally get a break because before long, the trio needed to stop for gas. I'm not sure why he did this, but it was Alan himself who got out of the car, taking the keys with him to pump the gas and pay the teller in the store. While Constable Mercer and Ron Gomke were trapped alone in Constable Mercer's car, they decided to hatch a plan to make a run for it using a set of spare keys to Mercer's vehicle that Alan didn't know she had. Thankfully, the two made it to the nearest RCMP headquarters in Fredericton, directly off of the Trans-Canada Highway in New Brunswick. And before long, the gas station they had stopped at, where Alan Legere was last known to be at, was surrounded by police. Unfortunately, however, as was the case for the many times police were so close to capturing Alan Legere, he was gone by the time they got there. But they knew he couldn't have gotten far, especially on foot, and especially in the snowstorm like they were having on this day. And so police set up roadblocks along all the major roadways in the area. It turned out that after Constable Mercer drove off while Alan Legere was still inside the gas station, another man pulled up to the station in his transport truck by the name of Brian Golding. Brian would have no idea that pulling up to the Four Corners Irving gas station would turn out to be one of the most easily regrettable and eventful turning points in his life. As Alan exited the gas station and realized that his two hostages had escaped, he turned to Brian Golding and said, I'm Alan Legere and we're leaving. Now, with his third hostage of the day, Alan and Golding drove throughout the night, waywardly around Moncton, unsure of their direction, and Golding was certainly unsure of Alan's next moves. At around 5 in the morning, the two argued about their direction, and Alan told Golding to head down to Route 118 along the Miramichi River. Another trucker spotted the vehicle and knew it was unusual because apparently Route 118 wasn't typically used by trucks, at least not typically used by the type of trucks that Brian Golding had. So this other trucker called the police using his CB radio. And before long, police were on their tail. Golding actually saw police following them and asked Alan what he wanted to do. All Alan could say was, keep driving. It was clear that Alan knew he was being boxed in. After almost seven months on the run and an entire night driving around in a snowstorm, he knew he was running out of options, especially now that police were literally in his rearview mirror. After another 45 minutes of a chase, Golding pleaded with Alan that he just couldn't do this anymore and Alan Legier knew his options were limited. Think about it. This is the second car he's hijacked tonight, bringing the total kidnapping victims to three in just under two days. And the storm was still raging. He had no idea where he was going. He was in really rough condition from almost seven months on the run. He had killed numerous people, and he certainly was not about to outrun police cruisers in a transport truck, let alone on foot if he decided to get out and run. It was then when Golding stopped the vehicle just outside of Rogersville, New Brunswick, and Corporal Terry Barter and Corporal Gary Lutwick were able to approach the passenger and driver's side doors, respectively. Police were able to confiscate the sawed-off rifle that Legere had, which they discovered was locked and loaded, ready to fire. 
After a short struggle, Legere was in cuffs, and before long, he was detained at the Newcastle RCMP building in New Brunswick after six months and 21 days evading police. The people of New Brunswick could breathe a sigh of relief. Their tormentor was finally off the streets and in custody where he couldn't torture them anymore. In August of 1990, Legere was convicted of the charges related to his initial escape back in May of 89, and he was sentenced to nine years for that. He was also convicted for kidnapping Peggy Olive, the woman who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time when Legere escaped the hospital after being transported there for an ear infection. It would only be a few months from then when the trials would begin for the four brutal murders he committed while on the run. On November 20th, RCMP Inspector Al Hutchinson and RCMP Superintendent Al Rivard held a press conference to let the public know that Alan Legere was being charged with four counts of first-degree murder, but that the actual trials wouldn't start until February 4th of 1991. During so, experts testified about the boot prints found in Father Smith's church rectory home, and there was evidence that Legere had stolen two rifles in October of 89 from a shed someone was living in in Miramichi, two rifles that were later found in the glove compartment of Father Smith's abandoned car in the Keddie Motel parking lot. Many witnesses testified that throughout the six months and 21 days he was on the run, they saw someone matching Legere's description lurking around their neighborhoods in Miramichi at night. And many people testified about how their now chronic hypervigilance was debilitating their lives because no one was ever really sure who the next victim of the boogeyman would be during this time. And that's exactly what Legere embodied during his time tormenting the residents of Miramichi. Nina Flam, the sister of murdered Annie Flam, like I mentioned before, testified that she was awoken by a masked intruder before she was beaten and sexually assaulted. And mind you, all of these details only came out in court documents because Legere decided to plead not guilty to everything. I don't know why, I can only speculate that he did this to further reach his suffering onto his victims and the Miramichi community as a whole. But obviously, the evidence against him was overwhelming, most damning being a sample of seminal fluid from the Flam and Donnie Holmes that were DNA matched to a sample of Legere's hair already on file. Interestingly, this DNA match would be the first of its kind in Canada. Typically, DNA before this time was used to exonerate people who were wrongly convicted. However, this was the first case in Canada where DNA was used to convict somebody. And that's exactly what happened. Legere was convicted of all four murders. During the sentencing, the courthouse was packed with the first three or so rows just absolutely littered with microphones and wires ready to capture the spectacle about to take place. However, in true Alan Legere style, the proceedings were a bit delayed because he refused to exit his holding cell. The presiding judge, Justice David Dixons, wasn't having it and delayed the start of the sentencing to ensure that Alan would have to face the court in person while being handed his sentence. 
There was no way in hell that Justice Dixon's was gonna let Alan cowered away in his holding cell while watching the sentencing from a television in his room, when he just spent the last seven months plotting against the innocent people of Miramichi basking in the glory of their terror after escaping detainment after ripping away a beloved member of the community, John Glendening. Alan Legere's victim count was so high and his remorse was so low, so after a short delay, he was forced into the courtroom in cuffs. On November 3rd of 1991, jury foreman Letitia Lancaster was called to read the agreed-upon verdicts for all four counts of first-degree murder being brought upon Alan Legere. On each count, Lancaster replied to the readings, guilty as charged, first-degree murder. Justice Dixon told the six women and five men jury that although it's not his job to comment on the verdicts made by a jury, he knew how difficult this trial was for the jurors, councilmen, and the community. And so he actually remarked to them after the sentencing, don't lose too much sleep over your verdict. I think that speaks to the magnitude of fear that Alan Legere instilled in the people of Miramichi. It is very uncommon for a presiding judge to make any sort of comments about the outcome of a trial. Alan Legere is currently serving his life sentences in Edmonton, Alberta, and has been recently denied parole as of January of 2021. Interestingly, during this hearing, Legere seemed shocked that he didn't get his parole, and he even asked the courtroom for clarification as to why he just simply couldn't be forgiven for his crimes. Even more interestingly, because Alan Legere was the first Canadian to be convicted on DNA as opposed to exonerated, the York County Gale, where he was held during his trial, was closed in 1996 and in 99 it was converted to a science museum where an exhibit on DNA profiling exists in place of his old cell. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to follow wherever you're listening now so that you don't miss the next one. I highly recommend you read Terror's End or check out more content about Alan this year because truly one podcast episode cannot capture how prolific he was and how his actions left a lasting impression on Canadians as a whole. I also highly recommend you check out the episode by Crime Junkie on The Monster of Miramichi, which is about Alan Legere. They did a fantastic job covering the case. Don't forget also to follow me on Instagram at crimopediapod, and if you have a case suggestion, you can always reach me there, or you can use the case suggestion form I have on my website at crimopediapod.ca. Thank you guys again so much for listening. I am so grateful for all of you, and I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback on today's episode. I'll talk to you all again soon. Bye for now.